You know, today we're starting a new sermon series. Uh, it's entitled Ordinary People, Extraordinary God. And we're going to uh, spend the next six weeks leading up to Easter. And we're gonna, in the next five weeks, we're going to look at five encounters that Jesus has with just ordinary people. And uh, we're going to tell these stories and talk about them. Um, some of these stories have great outcomes. They're happy endings. A couple of them, not so much. Jesus is rejected, actually. Just ordinary people, though, like you, like me. And what happens when they meet face-to-face with Jesus? Our first story takes place in the city of Capernaum. Capernaum sits on the northern uh, coast of the Sea of Galilee. It is, um, according to Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus had now made his home. He was coming to his hometown, and um, it's early in his ministry. He hasn't even put his whole team together yet. Not all the disciples have even been called yet. Um, but he finds himself in a residence, a large, probably, home. Don't know whose home it is. Some speculation is that it might be Peter's house. Don't know if a fisherman would have the wherewithal to have a very large home at those times, but um, Jesus is there, and news has already spread. He's back. He's in town. And a crowd begins to gather. Now, no doubt, the crowd is comprised of many different types of people. Uh, there's going to be people there who have heard that, uh, I heard that he healed somebody, and I have this situation, I have this illness, I have this malady, and I, maybe he'll heal me. I'm going to go. Others will say, you know, I'm just curious to see what all the fuss is about with this new prophet, this new rabbi, this new teacher. I'm just curious. I'm going to go find out. And then there were those who were, uh, uh, let's just call them the caretakers of truth, the Pharisees, right? right? They were there to make sure he doesn't get out of line, make sure he's not, uh, first of all, a competitor, but second of all, if he says something he ought not, we can nail him. Needless to say, the place was packed. Standing room only. Mark, the second chapter. All of these stories that we're going to look at come from the book of Mark. So Mark 2, the first 12 verses tell the story. Let me read it. When he had come back to Compertium several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. Well, of course they did, right? Naturally. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up and pick up your pallet and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, 
he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. I bet not. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? You know, there's so much in this story, and I've grappled a little bit with what I want to say today. I could probably preach half a dozen sermons on just this one passage, and uh, I've chosen to just focus on the first half of the story. I'm not going to even deal with the whole reaction of the scribes and the Pharisees. I really want to focus on this little group of five guys, the paralytic and the four stretcher bearers, if you will. Let's take a look first at the four, the friends of the paralytic. They heard that Jesus was back in town, and uh, he heals people. Our friend is paralyzed. Maybe he'll heal our friend. And when you look at the story, if you look at it closely, there are some odd things about the story, right? First of all, here's what strikes me as odd. The, the five guys, we hear nothing from them. There's no conversation. There's no words that they say. Now, there may have been things that they said, but nothing, uh, according to Mark, worth uh, telling us about. They're just silent. They let their actions speak for themselves. So it makes me think this about faith. Because Jesus says, these are people of great faith and yet they say nothing. But perhaps it's this, faith involves intentional activity. <laughs> I don't have faith unless I'm going to put it into action. I'm not going to have faith, as James says, unless I have what? <laughs> Works of some kind. They believed Jesus was the answer. They had faith that Jesus was the answer to their friend's problem. They were not going to be denied. They come to the house. They see the crowd. No problem, right? Can you imagine the conversation outside the house amongst these four guys, these five people? Man, it's crowded. We're never going to get to him. Hey, what about the roof? Right? You would have thought that, right? We can just pull off the thatch off the, between a couple of beams and we can start digging through the mud. Really? The roof? Yeah, look, there's steps right up the side of the, no, right upside the house out on the outside here. We can get up there. You know, back then, roofs were like our decks. That's where you did the barbecuing and all that kind of stuff, right? Can you imagine being the paralytic and hearing the conversation? You're going to do what to me? Think about it. What if, after digging through the mud, making this huge scene of lowering this paralytic down on these four ropes, in front of the whole town, basically, all of their fellow citizens... What if after all of that, Jesus kind of looks at him like, what are you guys doing? I'm in the middle of a talk here. And he doesn't heal them. I mean, really, they had no assurances, did they? 
They had no promises. They had no guarantees that this thing was going to work. All they had was a silly thing called belief. Faith. And they were just willing to just do whatever, take the risk, whatever risk was involved. Because they believed that Jesus was their answer. You know, I think risk is inherent in faith. Faith involves risk. I really come to believe in my own life that I have no faith if I'm not willing to risk. Faith is a step into the unknown. Kind of reminds me of a parable that Jesus told back over in Matthew 25, one of his final parables about a rich owner who's going to go away for a while and he's got, he calls three of his servants together and he wants to put his estate in their hands. And he says, well, I'm gone. I want you to take my estate and manage it and care for it. And he gave them unequal portions. You probably know the story. He gave one, uh, five talents. You know how much a talent was? A talent equaled 15 years of a common laborer's wage. 15 years. That's one talent. He gave one guy five talents. This is not some paltry amount of money. Let's say a talent is a half a million dollars, 15 years of wages. So the, the first one got two and a half million dollars. The second one got two talents or a million dollars. And the third one got a paltry half a million dollars. And he says, I'm going to go away. You manage my money. And he goes away and he comes back and he sees the first one. And the first one took the $2.5 million and now he has $5 million. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. I entrusted things to you. You took it and used it and created more. And he gave, came to the second one. I gave you a million. Here's two million back. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You took what I gave you and uh, you used it. You didn't shrink back and hold in. You, well done. And then he came to the third who had the least. And he had hoarded his half a million because he was fearful. And I think how many of us today, I, I would say would be like him, or how many of us today are like him? They're just, we, we, we gather in and hold tight rather than let go. And we're afraid to let go of that money, and uh, yet God wants to take it and just use it. And we're afraid to step into a ministry because I, don't, I might not succeed. And so we just are in this retreat mode, and the Spirit of Christ in us is continually compelling us to invest, invest. I want to read how this passage ends in Matthew 25 from a paraphrase called The Message. I want you to know I don't often use the message because it is just a paraphrase. It's not a translation of the Bible. It's not to be used as a study Bible. It is just a man's opinion about how to bring historical stories into modern language and context. And it's his take on the story. And sometimes it provides some great insight. Here's how he tells the end of the story in Matthew 25, 24. He says, The servant given 1,000, which is equal to what I was calling half a million, said, 
Master, I know you have high standards and hate careless ways, that you demand the best and hate, make no allowances for error. I was afraid I might disappoint you, so I found a good hiding place and secured your money. Here it is. Here it is, safe and sound, down to the last cent. The master was furious. That's a terrible way to live. It's criminal to live cautiously like that. If you knew I was after the best, why did you do less than the least? The least you could have done would have been to invest the sum with the bankers, where at least I would have gotten a little interest. Take the thousand and give it to the one who risked the most and get rid of this, and in quotes, this play it safe, who won't go out on a limb. Throw him out into utter darkness. I remember reading that, that paraphrase on this passage many years ago and uh, him labeling the guy a play it safe. That was his name. He's a play it safer. And I thought, well, that's me. Right? How many play it safers do we have? I mean, just by nature. You're not adventurous. You're not risk takers. And uh, I just want answers before I step out and I want assurances before I uh. there's been many times where I've had to wrestle with the whole idea of courageous faith these men these stretcher bearers I don't care what people think we're going to dig a hole in the roof uh, we're all in I mean, once we get halfway through this hole, there's no turning back. I mean, mud's going to start dropping on Jesus, right? <laughs> We're all in. And all they had to go on was what? Faith. Yeah. Interesting, it says in the passage that Jesus, seeing their faith, the point is plural seeing five guys' faith. He told the man, your sins are forgiven. You just think about it. Jesus saw the community of faith in this little entourage, and he gave spiritual forgiveness and healing. I mean, it has profound theological implications, doesn't it? <laughs> That means I can have faith when my child is wayward, right? That means I can have faith for my friend who seems to be tired of the struggle. It means I can have faith for my nation that seems so lost. Because it's the presence of faith that pleases God. It is the presence of faith that provokes God. My point is that faith pleases and provokes Jesus in this situation. Hebrews 11.6 says what? Without faith it is impossible to please God. Jesus, I don't know. I don't know about the future, but I'm all in. I'm all in. I'll go where you want me to go. 
I'll do what you want me to do. I'll, I'll leave my fishing nets, my livelihood, and follow you, traipsing around Galilee, if that's what you want me to do. I'll face giants as they taunt my people, and I'll just trust in your power and your strength. And to be honest, what does Jesus want from us? <laughs> Faith. To believe in him. Now the paralytic. I mean, if, if you're the man laying there on the pallet, what's going through your mind as you see your friends digging through the mud in front of you. you. You you know what's coming. They actually are following through with this and they are going to create this hole and I am going to be in front of all those people let down. There's got to be this thought in your mind. Could this really work? Could this be the day that I walk. <laughs> and he, he gets to the ground and he's laying there and he looks up into the eyes of Jesus. Jesus looks at him and sees the faith of these guys and he says to the paralytic, Son, <laughs> your sins are forgiven. Not what I wanted to hear. you see, Jesus, I have a different kind of problem. So I'm asking you today, what's the bigger problem? The man's inability to walk or unforgive sin? My point is this, what holds you back is not physical. It's spiritual. The main problem in any person's life is not his suffering, but it's his sin. And so, and so much of the time, our intent is to ask God to relieve us of our temporary struggle when he is far more interested in our eternal home. And I'm sure that the paralytic thought, if I could just walk, my life would be so good. You ever had those thoughts? I mean, I think most everybody here can walk. And maybe it's something different for you. If, if only I could sing. If only <laughs> this person would love me. If only I could replace this job. <laughs> Think about your prayers. Do you pray for eternal things or do you find yourself occupied with trying to coax God to fixing temporary things? 
The Village Voice is a New York publication that writes about the culture of New York, and uh, one of their writers, Cynthia Heimel, wrote an article several years back about um, the, lives, uh, the lives of the rich and famous, and uh, she studied them. She, she went out and talked to a lot of people who have come to New York to strike it rich and be famous, and they would say things like this, if only I could make it, to, make it in the business, I'd be happy. And then she writes that when they would succeed, they became insufferable, <laughs> unstable, angry, and manic. She says they were now unhappier than they used to be when they were a nobody. She says this in the article, I pity celebrities. How many of you pity celebrities? Oh, all that money and all that fame. But she knew them. I pity celebrities. <laughs> I love this. They were once perfectly pleasant human beings. <laughs> but she goes on now. But now their wrath is awful. More than any of us, they wanted fame. They worked. They pushed. The morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing, was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, had happened. And nothing changed. She says, they were still them. <laughs> the disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. You'll like this last line to the article. I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants your deepest wish. Made me think. What's my deepest wish? What's your deepest wish? What's that, that thing that uh, you sometimes think, if that would happen, whew, life is great. Isn't it true that so much of the problems we have in this life is because we seek identity in things other than Jesus? We seek saviors other than then, Jesus, if I could just be on the top of my profession, if I could just, if that person would just love me. People desire that one thing that will, in their minds, rescue them from oblivion and fulfill their life and free them from mediocrity. Tim Keller writes this. I like this. Jesus says, if you, you see, if you have me, I will actually fulfill you. And if you fail me, well, I will always forgive you. I'm the only Savior who can do that. But it's hard to figure out, he writes. <laughs> Many of us first start going to God, going to church, because we have problems. And we're asking God to give us a little boost over the hump so that we can get back to saving ourselves. 
back to pursuing our deepest wish. The problem is that we're looking to something besides Jesus as Savior, and almost always when you first go to Jesus saying, this is my deepest wish, his response is, we need to go a lot deeper than that. What holds you back sometimes is that you seek physical answers when the problem is really spiritual. You've decided that this is going to make my life complete. This is going to be, everything's now perfect, everything's good, now I can be happy, and it's become my whole pursuit. Most of your prayer life, I'm sure, is dominated by this deepest wish pursuit. God, please. Yet he's telling you today, I want to go a whole lot deeper than that. Reminds me of a story from the children's series that C.S. Lewis wrote, The Chronicles of Narnia. You've read those books, right? Great books. They're great to read as an adult because then you kind of understand what he's really trying to say. The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, great book. There's a boy named Eustace. Everyone hates him. He hates everybody. He's an incorrigible child. And he finds himself alone on a desert island, a deserted island, and... Uh, he wanders into a cave, and what does he find there? He finds wealth. He finds diamonds and rubies and uh, gold. And he, he says, this is my lucky day. I have found it. This pile of riches, well, they're going to love me now. They're going to respect me now is kind of the implication. He falls asleep on his wealth not knowing that he's falling asleep on the horde of a dragon. And because of these greedy, dragonish thoughts, he actually becomes and turns into a grotesque, ugly dragon. And he soon realizes, I, I'm not going to fit back on the boat that got me here. Seems as though I'm going to be exiled, spend the rest of my life in this ugly dragon state by myself. Yet one day the lion shows up. And the lion is Aslan, and Aslan is the god figure in the stories of Narnia. And he leads Eustace to this pool of water and tells him to undress and get in. And he soon realizes that the line is saying, undress means to peel off your dragon skin. And so he does that. He, he finds that it, he just kind of pulls that in and it comes right off. And this is great. And, uh, but yet he finds just another layer. And so he peels that layer. And a third time he does the same thing. Finally, Aswan sees him making these attempts to save himself. He says, you, no, Eustace, you're going to have to let me go a lot deeper. Later, Eustace tells the story this way, quoting from the book. 
I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. I was, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. And he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I had done. In my, I had done it myself the other three times. But when I did it, it didn't hurt. And yet there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. Then Aslan caught hold of me and he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. Then I noticed I turned into a boy again. <laughs> and after a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me in new clothes. Have you ever experienced a gash of grace? <laughs> it's hard for me to read that story without weeping because just like Eustace or just like the, the paralyzed men, there have been times where I thought if God could just give me a little help, everything would be okay. Just a just a little bit more at the end of the month would help, God. Just a little healing, that would help, God. If you could just give me a little help. And all I would hear it is, I want to go so much deeper. And we have to let him use his claws and uh, sometimes and get all the way into our heart and just kind of reconfigure things and it's not wrong that the paralyzed man wants to walk. It's not even wrong for celebrities to want to be famous. It's not wrong for useless to want to be loved. The problem is that sometimes we think getting those things will be the pearl of greatest price. Our Savior. And in many ways today, folks, we're all just, hate to break it to you, but we're all ordinary people, right? <laughs> we're all ordinary people looking into the face of God today and saying, Lord, I need the constant presence of your forgiveness and I need the constant presence of your life in me and I need the constant presence of the extraordinary God just abiding in me. And it could be that today he's calling you like the stretcher bearers to step out in faith in something. And you don't know how it's going to turn out, but risk. Because you know he's just made it so clear. Probably even deeper than that is that most people today are chasing that dream. They're chasing that hope. If I just got that, they are chasing that either measure of success I just, want to, I just want to be loved or successful or healed. 
And perhaps today he's calling you, I just, uh, I want to go so much deeper than that. I want you to bow your heads with me and as I pray this final prayer, I want you to identify where this message, this story most connects with you. Where is it that, uh, if you're really honest, you says, if I could just have one thing, my life would be saved, my life would be rescued, my life would be better, if I, and it's not Jesus. As I pray, I want you to take that thing, and I just want you to say, I no longer want it to be my God. Father, we come to you in these closing moments to do spiritual work and to let you take our heart in your hands and to make it holy and completely yours. And Father, no doubt in this congregation today, there will be those that uh, they worry over the loss of their deepest wish, or they, they, uh, they have what they want, and, they're so, and it's so fragile, and yet they're trying to hold on to it so tightly that it doesn't crash and... Uh, Father, I just pray that they would just say, Lord, here it is. Here's my job. Here's my kids. Here's my future. Here's my nest egg and my retirement. Here it is, Father. And uh, I'm no longer going to pursue this in spite of you. And Father, I, I want in these... I want in these days of my life to believe in this deep work of the Spirit of God in my life. And I want to believe and state today that I am believing wholly and completely on the Lord Jesus Christ for my salvation, for my healing, for my future, for my kids. My faith is placed in you. And when I take a hit here, I take a hit there, I'm not going to, I'm not going to despair because I have you. And I just need to say that today. Lord, I believe in you. I believe in you. Believe in the cross and the work it's done in my life. I believe in the cross and the power of the cross to put to death the old us. I believe today in the power of the resurrection that I can live in a life that is not from this place. Let's stand together.